Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. The words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that free forgiveness comes because of the blood of the Lamb. Wash us clear and white and put the song of the cross in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 15 is at the center of the gospel. Here we have recorded in detail the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And since this is the center of the gospel, Mark chapter 15 is establishing patterns for the people of God, patterns for the church, patterns for what covenant community should be. Now, aside from the chief priests, verses 1 through 15 contain two people that play a role in the death of Christ. The first is Pontius Pilate who is featured in verses 1 through 15. So what is Pilate's role in the death of Christ? Well, Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea. He held the office from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. Both Josephus and Philo describe Pilate as being cruel and without any sensitivity to Jewish religious practices. Pilate's hatred for the Jewish people is well known. On one occasion, Pilate murdered 18 Galileans while they tried to offer sacrifices to God. This is recorded in Luke chapter 13. The Sanhedrin delivers Jesus over to Pilate with the charge that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds with a vague answer. You have said so. But what does Pilate really think about Jesus? 
Well, reading Mark's account of this event, we see that Pilate does not assume Jesus' guilt. In fact, Pilate seems to be perceptive about what is really going on. For example, verse 10, he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. And in Luke's account of the event, we're told that Pilate could find no fault with Jesus. Yet despite Pilate's conviction about Jesus' innocence, he falls prey to the pressure of the crowd and delivers Jesus to be crucified. But Pilate is convinced of Jesus' innocence, so much so that in Matthew chapter 27, he calls for water and washes his hands in the sight of the people attempting to display his innocence towards the death of Christ. So does this mean that Pilate did not participate in the death of Christ? Is Pilate innocent in the death of Christ as he tried to demonstrate before the crowds by washing his hands of it? Well, Acts chapter 4, verse 27 speaks an authoritative word on the matter when it says, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. See, Pilate tries to declare himself innocent, but he is not. Pilate has a role in the death of Christ since he delivers Jesus over to be crucified, as we see in verse 15. And in so doing, Pilate furthers the uniqueness of Jesus' death. Jesus is delivered to be crucified by one who thinks he is innocent of the charge brought against him. And the second person to participate in Christ's death in verses 1 through 15 is Barabbas. Well, what is Barabbas's role in the death of Christ? Well, if Jesus is set free, Instead of Barabbas, then Jesus will escape the punishment of death by crucifixion. But instead, Barabbas, a notorious Jewish national who'd led an insurrection against Roman rule, is released, while Jesus, who is innocent, endures the death sentence. So Barabbas, who actually committed insurrection, is released, and Jesus, who is falsely accused of insurrection, is crucified. It says in verse 7 that Barabbas is guilty of insurrection. Insurrection is derived from the word stasis, which is related to the word state. So Barabbas wants to overturn the state. And so Barabbas is a revolutionary. He's an insurrectionist. He is a true threat to Pilate. Pilate has every reason to crucify Barabbas instead of Jesus. But notice the substitution that takes place. Barabbas is an insurrectionist who has committed murder. Barabbas participated in a political insurrection against Roman military forces in Judea. Jesus is brought to Pilate under charges of king of the Jews. Now, Pilate doesn't care if Jesus is the king of the Jews or not. Pilate doesn't care if the claim to be Messiah is accurate. In Pilate's mind, that's a Jewish issue. That's a, that's a religious issue for the Jewish people to figure out. They should deal with it themselves. The problem is, is the Jews don't have the authority to put someone to death. 
And so they bring Jesus to the one who does have that authority. They bring Jesus to Pilate and declare, in effect, Jesus is claiming to be king of the Jews. Jesus is claiming to be an insurrectionist. He's planning an uprising against Caesar. Pilate, get him. And so Jesus is eventually put to death under the charge, king of the Jews, as one who may be leading an uprising of the Jewish people against the Romans. And so again, Mark presents us with a unique circumstance surrounding Jesus' death. Barabbas, the insurrectionist, is released, while Jesus, the innocent one, is crucified. The role of Pilate and Barabbas shows us that Jesus' death is no ordinary death. The death of Jesus of Nazareth is truly unique. And this passage is establishing three patterns for the people of God, patterns for the church, patterns for what covenant community should be. The first pattern is that the crucifixion is public, which means the Christian life is public. The crucifixion is public, which means the Christian life is public. The sufferings of Christ were prophesied in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. Pierced. Not death by old age. Not death by freak accident. Not death by heart attack. Pierced. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says, It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, there is a profound fittingness that Christ would suffer publicly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 calls Christ the Passover lamb. So God the Son came to earth in the form of a man, going from the highest point of exaltation with God to the lowest point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' public crucifixion was the path from the highest to the lowest, from heaven to humiliation. Death on a cross, the most despicable, shameful, demeaning, painful form of execution. And the guilt he bears during the crucifixion required public humiliation. Achieving salvation for his people required public suffering. In his public death, Christ fulfills the predestined plan of God. He fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. Now here's the point. Jesus suffered and died publicly which means our faith is no mere private issue. Now, our faith does have a private component. Our faith does have moments of private expression. We should have moments of private prayer regularly, for example. But Jesus suffered and died publicly, which means our faith is no mere private issue. All of Christ's kingdom exists publicly. The gospel is in itself externalized into a culture where 
Christ is king. Since this fact is the basis for any Christian pursuit, the gospel can never merely be internalized. It can never just be me and Jesus in the prayer closet. Christ's death is public. His resurrection is public. And the kingdom he establishes is public, which means there is not any part of Christianity that is merely individual or private. With the cross, public things invade the inner things. And the inner life always has public expression. And so the first pattern is that the crucifixion is public, which means the Christian life is public. The second pattern is that the crucifixion becomes the cross, which means all of life is worship. The crucifixion becomes the cross, which means all of life is worship. You see, theologically, just with the way the language is used in the New Testament, there is a distinction between the crucifixion and the cross. And David Wells, the great theologian, helped me first see this distinction in Scripture. But when you see the language of crucifixion, well, the crucifixion, it refers to the barbaric way of carrying out a Roman execution. Some form of the word crucify appears eight times in Mark chapter 15 alone. But in the New Testament, the word the cross, which is based on the same word as crucify, that word appears 27 times in the New Testament. And the cross, as the New Testament speaks of it, has to do with the theology of the crucifixion. It has to do with the mysterious meaning of the crucifixion. So the word crucifixion refers to the method of death. It refers to the barbaric way in which Jesus was killed. But the word cross refers to the theological meaning of the death of Christ. And in Mark chapter 15, the meaning of the crucifixion seems lost on all those who participate in Jesus' death, from Pilate to Barabbas, from the soldiers to the passers-by. Besides Jesus' tortured cry in verse 34, and the darkness in verse 33, which represents the judgment of God, there is little in Mark chapter 15 to indicate the meaning of what is happening. The centurion knows this crucified man is the Son of God in verse 39, but that's about the extent of human understanding of what's happening as this man dies. And it's one thing to ponder the horrifying circumstances of Jesus' death. We should do that. We should ponder that. Mark 15 is leading us to do that. And we especially do that during our Good Friday service. It's one thing to ponder the horrifying circumstances of Jesus' death. It's another thing to ponder that this is the death of the eternal Christ that we need for salvation. And so we need to see how the crucifixion becomes the cross. We need to see how the horrific murder of Jesus Christ comes to have the rich theological meaning of our salvation. And there are a few steps to seeing this. 
The first way to see how the crucifixion becomes the cross is you need to see that Christ's incarnate life is not a random sequence of events. His life is not accidental. Nothing in his life is accidental. Christ's life is the fulfillment of a divine plan sovereignly administered. Jesus' life on earth is driven by a purpose. And so we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, he must be in his father's house. We read in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he must go to Jerusalem to be killed. We read in Luke 24, 26, after the resurrection, he tells the men on the Emmaus road, it was necessary that he suffer. John's gospel repeatedly tells us that Jesus was sent into the world. For example, John chapter 4, verse 34. See, there is divine purpose in the life of Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 tells us that Jesus is delivered to death according to the plan of God. And so the first way to see how the crucifixion becomes the cross is to see that Christ's life is not a random sequence of events. Second step in seeing this is to see that Christ is the Lamb of God. We see this explicitly in John chapter 10, verse 11. He is the Lamb of God, which means in our place condemned He stood, making peace by the blood of the cross, winning the victory over sin, death, and the devil. And so we need to see how the crucifixion becomes the cross. We see this first because Christ's life is not a random sequence of events. We see this second because Christ is the Lamb of God. And we see this third because Christ's death demonstrates the holy love of God. It demonstrates the holiness of God because God requires a payment for sin. It demonstrates the love of God because God provides the payment. So the God who is holy is the God who is Savior. And so we must dwell upon the crucifixion of Christ. We must, we must know the details of a Roman crucifixion and how horrible it was and how painful it was. We must do this. We must reflect on this. And we also must see how the crucifixion becomes the cross. That is, we must see the full theological meaning of the death of this man, namely our salvation. The brutal crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the salvation of the world. Now there is a danger that by fixating on the crucifixion itself, we lose the cross. So we might consider the horrifying circumstances of his death, but this takes us only so far. If we think only about the crucifixion, then we will do little more than pity Jesus. We will look at him and we will feel sorry for him. But Christ isn't dying to say, look at me, this hurts. He's not after our pity. On the cross, Jesus Christ is purchasing your redemption. He is purchasing our salvation. He is accomplishing the victory. He is turning the wisdom of the world on its head. He is establishing his kingdom, which culminates in bringing heaven to earth. 
That is the meaning of the event. And the result ought not be that we pity him, but that we worship him. See, the crucifixion becomes the cross, which means all of life is worship. See, if all we know is the crucifixion, if all we know is this hurt, then we will do nothing more than what the 18th century Arminians did, and we will look at the cross and we will pity Jesus, and we will feel sorry for him. But no, when you see that the crucifixion becomes the cross, then all of life is worship. And so the first pattern from Mark chapter 15 is that the crucifixion is public, which means the Christian life is public. The second pattern is that the crucifixion becomes the cross, which means all of life is worship. And the third pattern is that the crucifixion is objective, which means all of life has meaning. The crucifixion is objective, which means all of life has meaning. So the first part, the crucifixion is objective. The crucifixion of Jesus happened in space and time. It happened on earth. It happened in history. Pilate was a real person, written about in history books besides just the Bible. Barabbas was a real person. The chief priests were real people. The crowds shouting crucify him were real people using real words. The cross was made from real wood. The beatings delivered by real hands. The crucifixion is objective. The crucifixion of Christ is as real as any other event you've ever experienced. It's as objective as any event recorded in history. The crucifixion is objective. And this is the case because God, the Son, took on human form and entered into this world. The crucifixion is objective because Christ lived a real life. Christ was no figment of imagination, no phantom. Christ was crucified at Golgotha. Christ was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Christ was raised from the dead, and Christ was seen afterwards. And because of all of these objective events recorded in Mark chapter 15, you are confronted with a set of objective historical facts that require an answer. You cannot evade them. Mark chapter 15 speaks to you even when you wish not to listen. The Bible speaks to you of how God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ and loved you to the point of horrific death. And the death and resurrection of Christ are objective facts, which means they speak to you from outside of your private self. When you come to the Jesus who was crucified and resurrected, the Holy Spirit takes the objective truth of Christ's victory over sin and crashes it into your private self. The objective facts of God's redemption indwell you subjectively, indwells your heart. The Holy Spirit enters your inward world from the outside, bringing all the glorious, death-defeating, 
sin-smiting, devil-destroying accomplishments of Jesus Christ. And so the crucifixion is objective, which means all of life has meaning. It means that all of life has meaning. Many people today say there is no truth, only truths. They say there is no external meaning, only the internal meaning that I supply. There's only an internal radar. And so they find little meaning to life, little meaning in joy, little meaning in suffering. Because for them, there is no meaning, there is no meta narrative, there is no objective standard or truth in the universe. There's just personal experiences and personal opinions and personal stories. Such an inward orientation might have a notion of God. It might have a notion of God. But it never has the knowledge of the God who was crucified and resurrected. It is only when the objective truth of the gospel envelops your inward person that you will experience the transcendent meaning for all of life. Meaning in every part of your life. Meaning in suffering. Meaning in relationships, good and difficult. Meaning in death. Meaning in work. Meaning in struggles. Meaning in traffic jams. Meaning in temptation. Meaning in family. And so, in conclusion, because of the crucifixion, because of the crucifixion, all of Christ's kingdom exists publicly, all of life is worship, and all of life has meaning. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, because of the cross, we can sing. At the cross, we fling down our burdens and see them vanish. Our mountains of guilt, duly earned, are leveled to a plain, because there is the power of the blood of Calvary to destroy sins more than can be counted. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.